Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Good evening, everyone. I'm Allison Camerata. Welcome to CNN Tonight. One day after the mass shooting at the bank in Louisville, Kentucky, police releasing body cam video and images of the shooter, a 25-year-old bank employee. He killed five people with an AR-15-style rifle that he bought legally. And tonight we show you video of the confrontation with police, one rookie officer still fighting for his life. He's shooting straight through these windows, right towards the officer. We ain't be able to plate somehow to be able to get there and pull him down from the stairs. As always here, we're looking for solutions to this uniquely American nightmare. The governor of Tennessee says he has a plan for preventing more deranged people from getting guns, so we'll look at that. Plus, what's happening in San Francisco? This week, a huge flagship Whole Foods announced that it would have to shut down to ensure the safety of their employees. Our panel dives into that crime wave. And is honking your horn free speech? We'll tell you about the California woman who ended up in court for honking her horn and how that turned out. But let's bring in our panelists. We have with us tonight Josh Barrow, who's the host of the Very Serious Podcast. We have Lynette Lopez, a columnist for The Insider. Coleman Hughes is the host of Conversations with Coleman podcast. And Mo Shwanunu is the founder of Mo News. Also joining us is retired NYPD sergeant and detective Felipe Rodriguez. Um, everyone, great to have you here tonight. Thanks so much for being Thank here. Um, Sergeant Rodriguez, I want to start with you because we see the body cam video. It's been released tonight of what happened in the bank. And once again, we see the incredible bravery of the police who showed up within minutes and who ran towards the gunfire, who ran towards the active shooter. So let me just play this for you and you can tell me what you see happening here in this video. I think I got him down. I think he's down. Yank the left off now. Yank him down the stairs. Sergeant, it's so powerful to see what we're asking our police officers to do in cities across the country every single week. And even with that bravery, and even though they arrived three minutes later, there were still five people killed. Well, if we see and we analyze the the use of force, 
we really have to give credit to these officers. The way they went in there from the moment that they arrived and they were besieged by gunfire. You know, you see the rookie officer being guided in by his field training officer and basically telling him where to set up. And the moment they even arrive with the car, they hit, you know, gunfire is heading their way. So that actually shows that they're in an ambush situation. And one of the things that we learned tactically is when we're being ambushed, we have to separate time and space. So we see that tactical retreat that they do. They set up immediately. They pull out, you know, their heavy weapons, their AR-15s. And you have a brand-new rookie police officer with 10 days. And here he is engaging in this, in this violent, you know, bank robbery that we have, multiple homicides. And at the end of the day, you see the way the officer had to, you know, pull out. And it's almost very rare, but they quickly reassessed themselves. They went in there and tried to handle the situation. And here they are. They are a gun. The rookie police officers with a standard 9 millimeter, And you have a gunman with an AR-15 that has high-velocity rounds, and he's able to shoot at a greater distance. Uh, I just feel bad for the, uh, the training, you know, officer uh, from the other department there because at the, at, from that department, at the end of the day, he lost one of his trainees. And for him, that's got to be something that, you know, it's going to be very difficult for him to deal with. Yeah. I mean, Sergeant, we feel bad for everyone involved. But as you say, they're outgunned. How do police, what do police want to have happen about all of the guns and the AR-15 style rifles that are on the streets? What, what I tell people is we need to reach some sort of common sense. You know, and I understand, I'm, you know, as a police officer, I know I have to uphold the Constitution and the values, and I do. But we have to have a common sense approach on the federal level. The way we have it now, we have so many hodgepodge different laws. You know, you go to New York and you have one firearm with 10 rounds, and now you're violating the law. You know, you go to another state, you're good with 10 rounds. You travel over to the state of New Jersey, you have hollow points, now you become a criminal. So we really need on a national level to recognize that we need common sense gun laws. And it's, it, it needs to be put in place and, and rapidly because the shootings are becoming, it's, it's an epidemic. Sergeant, stand by, if you would. I want to bring in my panel. Um, Josh, your thoughts tonight. I mean, it's obviously it's, it's tragic as these things are, even though they, they happen over and over again. I mean, you know, the, the U.S. has a really outsized level of gun death compared to other advanced countries in the world. The vast majority of those gun deaths occur with handguns, and a majority of them are suicides. And so the problem that we have is tremendous compared to these other countries. It also generally does not look in the way it looks that it looks on television. And so you can have, you know, we can have measures like red flag laws that will affect very high-profile things that we see, like maybe maybe the shooting that we saw in Tennessee, maybe it would have been affected by a red flag law, maybe not. You can prohibit certain kinds of firearms, and that will produce benefits at the margin. But by and large, if you have a country where you are generally able to own a handgun, if you wish to own a handgun, you're an adult, um, and you have a tremendous number of guns out there in circulation, you are going to have a higher rate of gun death, both homicides and suicides, than you have in other countries. So the sort of the toolkit that we end up talking about in response to these shootings is basically tinkering around the edges of a very large problem that could only be addressed in, in, to, to a much greater extent if we had a complete change in the political culture in this country and, frankly, a change in the Constitution. I don't think either of those are likely. Well, let's talk about what the, t- the governor of Tennessee is proposing because he wants to see something done. And so I find it hard to believe that red flag laws wouldn't have stopped this because this person was, um, at least in the bank, uh, sending an email saying that he was feeling suicidal. I mean, that's what the dispatcher knew about. And so here is what the uh, governor of Tennessee, where the school shooting was, is suggesting now. First, I'm asking the General Assembly to bring forth a new 
order of protection law. Our current law is proven and effective in many many circumstances, especially uh, with regard to domestic violence. But this new, stronger order of protection law will provide the broader population cover safety from those who are in danger to themselves or to the population. So, Lynette, what he's talking about is that currently for domestic violence, people who have been, I guess, arrested for domestic violence there in that state, they have to relinquish their guns, basically voluntarily, to a third party, not even to police. They have to relinquish them to a third party. But he's suggesting what I think is called red flag laws in other states. Yeah, he's not using the word gun in any Thing that he says. So I think now we're starting to see the development of kind of a Republican way of talking about tinkering around the edges, a, t- a kind of way of talking about gun control that doesn't use the word gun. And so maybe if we have this kind of language and we talk to each other in that way, um, we'll, we'll make some headway. But I think for those on the left who really want to see gun control, um, safety, protection, that kind of language is not going to be enough. But it, it is better than Republicans just kind of having nothing to say about this, which is where we've been. It's actually one of those phrases is, is already being phased out by some on the left. Gun control, gun reform is the word they're using, right? And already to some Republicans, uh, red flag laws is gun confiscation. Among those Republicans is the speaker of the Tennessee legislature, Cameron Sexton. So uh, notably was with the governor last week when he was announcing school security measures not with him today. So do we think that's why? Oh, he, meaning he doesn't support him today or he's not standing well, he, with him. So, right. So far, he, he has been a critic of red flag laws, which they're not calling red flag laws, but oh. effectively they're red flag laws. So it's notable you have a Republican here with a supermajority Republican legislature. He faces an uphill climb talking to Tennessee residents today. They're saying, well, this is something. They're hopeful. They're skeptical. But ultimately, um, you know, it is notable that you had a Republican here. And in both cases, by the way, Kentucky and Tennessee, both governors personally impacted. The governor of Tennessee and his wife were supposed to have dinner with one of the teachers killed at the school two weeks ago. And we, we know that the Ken, Kentucky governor lost two friends in the shooting. Yeah. I mean, I, I, you know, if you don't have red flag laws, the, the gun confiscation thing is a little after the fact. So I think most Americans would see that as kind of just chilling. You know, it's not, it's not really going to help in some of these cases. No, ultimately, whatever we want to call them, whether we call them red flag laws or not, there's no path to reducing these mass shootings without making it more difficult for some subset of people to get guns, right? I don't think, we, we saw, we've seen now twice in a row, very clean by the book police uh, responses uh, that have not stopped people from getting killed. Maybe they've reduced the number, but they haven't stopped it. The notion that uh, um, having security guards located on every possible site of a mass shooting, first of all, it's probably unfeasible. Second of all, even if it could be done, I don't think we could expect security guards to put their lives on the line uh, reliably. We've already seen it. There We've were security seen. guards at the right? supermarket. I mean, there, there have been security guards at mass shootings, and it doesn't right. stop them. So, so there's just no way around the fact that it has to become harder for certain people to get guns. What we call that may be an issue of branding and is, is important, but that's the core the, the limitation of the red flag law approach is that you can't perfectly predict in advance who's going to commit crimes. So either, you know, you can in certain other countries. If you're in Japan, then you have no presumptive right to own a gun. And so if they if there's a suspicion right. that you are someone who 
should not own a gun, the government can take it away from you. In the United mm-hmm. States, that is not that's not constitutional. It's also not consistent with with political public opinion. And so then you have the burden on the government in some way or another to show that somebody is dangerous. You're not always going to maybe be able to make that showing about someone who who in fact True, is but dangerous. Sometimes you can. Sometimes you can. They and we'll help at the margin. Warning signs, yes. as we see in in most of these cases. People have said something to their parents that's really worrisome or to their friends or they posted something online or to their coworkers. They often shoot off warning signs first. Right. But there are a lot of things about a lot of people that you can call warning signs. I mean, like one in three Americans has a mental health diagnosis. The, the, wow. the, when you when you come up with 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 uh, with criteria like that, you end up either being overbroad or because you can't legally be overbroad, then it becomes quite quite easy for some people who really shouldn't own a gun. They'll be able to 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 meet whatever the standard is under the law and they still will be able to own a gun. That's the difficulty of any regime where you're basically trying to predict in advance who's going to commit a crime. Yeah. But even if it's too narrow, I would argue, you know, reducing, if we were able to reduce these high profile mass shootings by 10, 20 percent, I think that would be, that would be something. No, I I agree. I'm in favor of red flag laws. I'm not opposed to them. I'm just, I'm just trying to set expectations about exactly the extent to which this will change the climate of gun violence. I I I think you have a good point. Massachusetts, we're looking at the numbers 2021. Massachusetts only used it eight times. In New Mexico, only used 12 times. In Chicago, a handful of times in a place like Chicago. So ultimately, maybe deaths were prevented in those cases, but we're really only talking about you know, on two hands. All right. Thank you all very much for this conversation. Sergeant, thank you very much. Now to this uh, open air drug markets, a tech executive stabbed to death. Now a huge Whole Foods is shutting down because of crime. What's going on in San Francisco? That's next. The Whole Foods market in one San Francisco neighborhood closing its doors over worries about worker safety. That city's struggling to deal with a wave of open drug use and crime. The company is shutting down its flagship location in the mid-market part of the city after just one year. In a statement, the store says, quote, To ensure the safety of our team members, we have made the difficult decision to close the Trinity store for the time being. All team members will be transferred to one of our nearby locations. My panel is back with me. So... Uh, Moshe, what's happening in San Francisco? It's a combination of several issues. You have an opioid crisis. You have a mental health crisis. You have crime. You have housing affordability. And you have a lack of office occupancy. So sort of abandoned areas during the day. Add that all up as mushrooming issues. Now stack that on top of a San Francisco police department that is uh, way below uh, initial staffing levels, was told basically during George Floyd, you're doing a bad job. So a lot of them, uh, re- uh, basically, their times responding to crime have gone down. Uh, a whole bunch of factors there. They have recruitment issues, uh, and a lot of them are just not really policing the same way they were. So add that all up, and you have a major problem on your hands. It's a comprehensive problem, and it's not just one issue. Um, Coleman, according to the San Francisco Standard, this Whole Foods store previously had to reduce its operating hours last year because of theft And it had to change its bathrooms after employees found syringes and pipes in there. I also read that they wouldn't allow, they they couldn't let customers use those hand baskets because they had started a year ago with 250 of them and they'd all been stolen. So you had to shop without a hand basket. Incredible. Look, this is happening in a lot of places. To some extent, it's happening in New York. And I'm going to tell you something. You may not believe me, but it's true. My local pharmacy, every single toothpaste is behind glass. Every single tube of toothpaste. Every single tube of toothpaste, toothpaste is behind glass. Why? So I cannot go to my local pharmacy 
and buy toothpaste without calling the clerk over to unlock it. Why is that so top secret? Why is the toothpaste That's what I asked them. I asked, why is all the toothpaste, and not just the toothpaste, but that, that's the most annoying to me because that's something I have to buy all the time. I brush my teeth a lot. Mm-hmm. So I asked them, and he just said two words, people steal. That's it. People steal it and they resell it on Amazon Marketplace. You can you can take the stuff. That toothpaste. You, yeah, or any any other consumer products. I mean, like if you deodorant. order if you order toothpaste or deodorant from Amazon. I mean, sometimes it's coming from Amazon.com, but sometimes it's coming from a marketplace seller who is selling as a third party on that platform. And there is a significant problem with things that are stolen from retail stores. They get diverted and then resold online. So that's it's not that people are stealing toothpaste because they need to brush their teeth. They're stealing toothpaste and detergent and things like this so that so that they can resell them. This particular area in San Francisco. I mean, this is. It's right by the Tenderloin. This is an area. This this area has always been a problem, and it was sort of up and coming prior to COVID. And then the the combination of factors that Moshe describes there, particularly, I mean, to, to say, this is not very far from the Twitter headquarters. Um, it is an area where there had been a lot of offices going in, a lot of new residences going in, and it has really been hit hard by COVID with people just not being on the ground in the city in the way that, the way they were. So I'm sure, in addition to the conditions in the store being horrible, the customer base that was supposed to be there was just not around the store in the way that it was supposed to be. And so it's, it's, it's not surprising to me that this is a particular location where, where Whole Foods would not thrive and they choose to close it. I actually have a friend who was on a business trip to San Francisco just a, a few weeks ago. He was staying about a 10-minute walk from this Whole Foods store. He walked to it. And he said the walk was so horrifying that he took an Uber back from Whole Foods because the neighborhood was in, was in such bad condition. So there's, there's lots of these problems, but this is, this is probably one of the worst neighborhoods in the country in terms of this, this kind of deterioration of, of the places where you might have thought to locate a Whole Foods just a few years ago. I have a question, though. Where is civil society in San Francisco? Where are the community leaders? Where are the wealthy billionaires? Like, in New York City, when we had our crisis in the 1970s and 80s, like, you know, we had a bunch of rich people who got together and tried to figure out how to fix the city. Like, where is that? Where are the tech barons? Why is Elon Musk on Twitter instead of helping San Francisco? You know what I mean? Like, where is that kind of civic pride? And I guess I think to kind of the ethos of Silicon Valley and, like, they let... Silicon Valley Bank, their community bank collapsed. So I guess the city doesn't really matter much. Well, what's the either. answer to that? Does anybody know the answer to that? Where is everybody helping San Francisco? Why is it in shambles like well, this? Well, look, isn't the more fundamental question, I mean, look, that's a question, but isn't the more fundamental question when we're talking about crime, where are the cops, right? If, you, if, if the cops are diminished by a large percent, as we saw in Minneapolis, right, you saw hundreds of cops retiring, crime goes up. And as you said, the time in responding to 911 calls goes up. Criminals notice that. That has an effect on people's incentives, right? That is the fundamental question. I don't think, I understand there's lots of other factors, but we can't ignore the central factor of the cops are the first responders to crime. And when you defang them, when you defund them, when you diminish them, this is what happens. One, one person there described policing in San Francisco as similar to now being a firefighter. Whereas there's policing that isn't necessarily always reactive, and then they become reactive. You know, we're not going to do anything because we're going to get in trouble on stuff, so we're going to just wait for stuff to happen, and then maybe we'll get to it because you guys don't like us anyway. Mm-hmm. But these are public employees. They work for us. It's their job to act proactively, and I understand there are police officers who felt disrespected. They're legally entitled to retire. You need to find somebody who can work in these departments who is willing to do that job, and I think partly that's a problem for liberals. Matt Iglesias had a really interesting piece about this this week, that, you know, you had Teach for America, and you had this whole effort to get people to 
to enter the, the public education system because of this idea that it was not working properly and it needed new personnel. You could have something like that for policing. If the people who were the incumbent police at the San Francisco Police Department don't feel like waking up in the morning and doing their jobs, you need to find and hire somebody else to do that. That might be expensive. I mean, if you want to change the conditions of policing to make it more restrictive, easier to fire or punish police who, who do their jobs badly, that might make it a less appealing job. You might need to pay more in order to attract people to, to that job. But somebody needs to do that. And if the incumbents in the, in the department aren't willing to do that, you need to hire somebody else who will. And I do think that the mayor has pivoted from 2020 when there was talk about let's redirect funds to mental health services, et cetera, to now asking the board of supervisors for millions and millions of dollars to beef up the ranks, because I think they're down something like 500 officers in San Francisco. So they do need more cops and they do recognize that they have a problem and they are looking for money to beef it up. I don't know if they would pay them anymore, but I think that they, in other words, I don't think that this is right now, they're not operating under the defund the police, have them back off, but they're trying to catch up. Right. But it's done damage, right? That messaging did damage. And so it's going to take a while. And I don't think it's just an issue of quantity, but quality of policing and quality of training. Um, and then ultimately, to Cameron's point about toothpaste being locked up, well, in many cases, certain theft Coleman. has been... De- Coleman. Sorry, Coleman. Uh, apologies. Um, it, uh, ultimately, that's been decriminalized. You know, mm-hmm. you can steal to a certain number now without facing any sort of real penalty. Well, right. that has ramifications, right? Yeah, I mean, that one, that is the quality of life issues that everyone's talking about. And it is amazing that San Francisco, this gem... Of a city full of young people, lots of talent, and it's just allowed to rot. I don't understand it. Yes. Where, where are you? Yes. Guys? Excellent questions. Thank you all very much. Okay, ahead. A terrifying firsthand account of that deadly kidnapping of four Americans in Mexico last month. Anderson Cooper just spoke with the two survivors in a CNN exclusive that we'll play you next. Putting on Diablo mask, red plastic mask. Putting, they put masks on? Yeah, it was putting the guns to our head, telling us not to look up, things like that. Tonight is CNN exclusive. Anderson Cooper speaking with the two Americans who survived that harrowing kidnapping by a Mexican cartel. They were kidnapped along with two friends who were shot and killed. Here's some of their story. We heard a car beat the horn and pulled around us. Zendel was in the back seat. He said, don't stop. He saw a gun. We drove through a few streets and corners until we got back on the main street. Mm-hmm. And that's when a gang of shooting started. Zendel and Shahid, they jumped out to run and they were gunned down. They was at Tay window beating on her window with um, a little gun, probably a nine millimeter. Mm-hmm. And I jumped out of the driver's side. And when I jumped out on the driver's side, that's when I was shot in both legs. We was on the ground for maybe like 10 minutes after they took everything from us. And I guess whoever told them to bring, just go ahead and bring us with them, that's when they loaded us on the back of the truck. My panel is back with me. Josh, can you imagine how terrifying? I mean, this is Mexico that we're talking about. Yeah. No, I mean, it's uh, the, the conditions in some of these border towns in Mexico is, is just horrible with the, the cartel violence and then the, the, the failure of the Mexican government essentially to assert control over, over much of its territory. It's, you know, I, I wouldn't go there. 
Yeah, I mean, we shouldn't, as we've now learned, because it was apparently a mistaken identity. They thought that they were a rival um, drug cartel or something. And so they, I mean, basically what it sounds like, I listened to all of Anderson's interview, it sounds like they got lost. They were trying to go to, I think she was there for some sort of cosmetic procedure. They were trying to go to a doctor where she'd been before. They got turned around. They got lost. And then suddenly they were surrounded by this um, drug cartel. And they basically started shooting, opening fire on them. Yeah, there are six states in Mexico that the State Department has put on a travel advisory list saying that is on par with Syria or going to Iraq or Afghanistan. And so that's the issue. Effectively, the cartels manage the territory. You know, we should note as we speak here tonight, the former head of the equivalent of the Mexican FBI sits in American prison tonight because of his involvement with the cartels. So this is cartel territory. And, you know, ultimately the cartels have said, you know, they've apologized, oh, these were rogue guys. But ultimately, this is the situation you're dealing with just a mile away from the U.S. border. So is this who we have to treat with when we're dealing with the lives of American citizens? we got to go to the cartel and not the Mexican government, not AMLO, their president. not So we, we have these faceless, nameless criminals that we have to deal with. And that's it. I mean, it worked. Uh, it worked yeah. because they, it turns out, they, when they realized that they had Americans, they too were spooked, but not in, before um, terrorizing the Americans. So they did want to give the Americans back and they knew that they were in trouble for having killed two of them. But it sounds really harrowing. Here is, so Eric is the one who was in the wheelchair and he was shot twice, I believe, in the leg. Here is what they decided to do with his injuries, the Mexican cartel. They put my leg on a two-by-four, and then they stitched it up. They, they just stitched it up? Right. Did they give you... No pain medicine or nothing. They just stitched it up. And it might have not even been later that same day, all the stitches bust out. Did they check to see if the bullet was still inside or anything like that? No, sir. After they stitched it, they took some, like, I guess, gauze, and they put the two-by-four board under there, and they was wrapping it around like that, and I was telling them the two-by-four two was hitting me in the back of my leg, and it was killing me, so they took away the two-by-four. I mean, this was obviously after they had already watched their friends be killed, and then that's how they're treated. It, it is really amazing that, that these two actually survived. On your thoughts. Well, it's incredible they're able to to talk about it so bravely, and um, I, I really just commend their bravery, and I'm glad that they survived it. I mean, I think we we like to think of Mexico as, as you know a fun place to vacation. You go to Cancun or you go to Mexico City, and you have the street cart food is that great. is famously good, and all those things are great. And then in other parts of the country, it's a failed state. So it's um, it's a place of extremes, and 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 we have to realize that. Um, there's one more really disturbing clip that I can play for you. Um, so they were basically kept for four days and they were threatened also with sexual violence and deviance. And here is how they said that they got out of that. You're a woman in custody with cartel gunmen. Were they threatening to you in, in violence, in sexual violence? I mean, yeah, they said all this stuff, all that. They did. Mm hmm. And they tried to make us have sex with each other, and but we, told them we was brothers we and sisters. brother and sister, and that she was pregnant. Wait a minute, 
I, they tried to make you have sex with each other. Mm-hmm. What did they say to you? They was like, what are y'all? We said brothers and sisters. And they was like, have sex with each other. I was like, no, these are my brothers. I'm pregnant. That's warped. Super warped. And, uh, you know, I hope that it makes Americans consider why immigrants come to this country from Mexico, have a little more sympathy and empathy for those who take great personal risk to get to the United States of America and just want to work and be safe. I think that this is a story that should really make us consider the push reason, reasons why we have immigrants here and why we have an immigration situation. It's not all our situation. It's also because we have neighbors in need and we should be considerate of uh, By that. the same token, I agree. By the same token, it should make us consider that the fears that, that Donald Trump and Republicans have about who is coming over, you know, that's who they're, the, the depraved people they're talking about, that's who they're worried about coming over, right? So... But isn't it the depraved it people's to, victims that are coming over? Right, but it's it, it may also be depraved people, maybe a small part of the population as well. It's like th- this mean, is it, it brings out both both sides of the immigration debate here. Is what I'm sure, saying. but I'm sure the members of the cartel. I mean, I know that it is a, a, an extremely violent program, but there are millions and millions of people crossing the border. There are children crossing the border. I'm sure. Children are not the violent, deviant criminals. There are a lot of women. Well, you know that's not what you I'm know, saying. You know, it's you know that's just, not what I'm saying. Yeah, but I'm saying people who live on border towns, they see a story like this and they think we have to have an immigration policy that separates out the, the problems of failed state Mexico and only brings in the rest of Mexico, which is the vast majority of Mexico, to your point. The, the bulk of the people tra- trying to cross the U.S. border illegally from Mexico are, are not Mexicans anymore. This is, I mean, the, the, the situations, I mean, the, this situation exists and there's a situation down in, in Central America and Guatemala where there's a, a different set of push factors that are there. But by, by and large, it's not Mexican people that we're seeing trying to enter the United States through Mexico now. Yeah, but the, a lot of the same push factors exist. The cartels running the Central American countries, and especially we're seeing a lot of immigration from Haiti, actually, from that border. And Haiti is a straight-up failed state. Like, it is the same situation that you're seeing in Mexico, but even worse. So I understand, you know, there are I take your point. I mean, the violence that, that it brings home in very— um, graphic terms, the violence that people are subjected to in their lives if you live in one of these communities of yeah. what you're, you know, who you're encountering and what they're doing to you. Um, thank you all very much. Make sure you stick around at the top of the hour because we're going to dive deep into several stories with our panel of reporters. We have uh, Alana Treen with us. She's learning all about the back channel communications, keeping Donald Trump in the loop on Republican investigations. Okay, but first here, we're going to talk about is honking a free speech violation, honking your horn. One California driver decided to make the court decide after she was ticketed for honking in solidarity with protesters. Was that free speech? We'll tell you what they ruled next. All right, how many of you have honked your horn in celebration or honked your horn in anger? Is that considered free speech? Apparently not in California. A federal appeals court ruling against a woman who honked her horn in protest of Congressman Darrell Issa and his support of former President Trump. 
She said she was exercising her freedom of speech. The court said she was a danger. My panel is back along with CNN legal analyst Jennifer Rogers. Why can't I honk my horn, Jen, at anybody I want to? Well, California has a law that's a public safety-focused law that says you can only honk your horn if it's reasonably necessary for a traffic-related issue, right? If someone's cutting you off, if someone's going to hit you, if you need to warn somebody. Otherwise, they don't want people honking because if everyone's honking all the time, then no one will pay attention when there's actually a need for someone to listen to the honk. So there's this law on the books, and she honked in support of some protests 14 times, and she got a ticket. But I mean, don't we all honk? Like when you see protesters and they have their posters standing on a bridge, aren't you always like, honk, honk, if you support them, like and wave them. Isn't that, isn't that freedom of speech? How much is this ticket? Oh, I don't know, but she didn't pay it. She didn't end up paying it. So she, she, yeah. I, I, I would just pay the ticket. Like she didn't even have to pay the ticket because oh. the cop didn't show up. She sued because she said this law is unconstitutional. I mean, this issue at the court was about the constitutionality of this law. So they say, is it expressive? And they said, yes. You know, you're expressing, as you say, Allison, you're expressing something when you honk that way. So it goes into the kind of free speech, First Amendment rubric of jurisprudence, right? But then they say, is it content neutral or content based? Are you saying you can honk expressively to support progressive causes, but not conservative causes? No, it's not. It says Mm -hmm. if it's public safety related to the driving, you can do it. If not, you can't. So it goes under a specific level of scrutiny. They say if the government has an important interest, which here is public safety, and what they're doing, the law is reasonably tailored to meet that interest, then it passes. That's it. Isn't there a selective prosecution issue here? I mean, people honk their horns all the time for all sorts of reasons that are not specifically about public safety and are almost never never ticketed for that. This was in the context of a protest. Isn't it likely that she was picked on for her views? So in this instance, the court explicitly said there was no allegation of that here. You are right. If she said they pulled me over because... I said that I was supporting this particular viewpoint and they pulled me over because they didn't like it. You'd be in a different level of scrutiny, maybe a different outcome. But here they said nothing like that. Here's why they were angry. Because she honked 14 times. So that's the lawsuit. She honked 14 times. Is that excessive? It's excessive. (laughs) If you lived in that neighborhood, I think you'd think it's excessive, right? And you'd want that to end. And, And look, I think... The state of California is allowed to have a law like this, right? I think, I mean, if you think of a different example that might be similar, it's like, can you ban fireworks, right? What if I said, if you hate Trump, put up a flare, right? Could you ban that? Well, I think you could ban that, right? Because, but that might be speech or expression in the same way that honking is, right? The bottom line is like, if you can ban honking or fireworks, I think you should be able to ban it. Here's what honking 14 times sounds like. Go. No, no, don't do it. (laughs) Oh, it's horrible. That's only four That's times. That's only four. That's only four. Uh, yeah, if, if, never mind. Uh, we don't need the other ten times. So, I mean, Lynette, what happened to the good old-fashioned flip of the middle finger? I, I mean, doesn't I, that just work in every situation? I it it can. <laughs> it's very expressive if you're looking, and it's you know it actually actually at least stands for a word, which is speech. Whereas honking is just honking. It's like banging pots and pans. Mm-hmm. That to me, this is a a question of noise pollution, right? Right, and, and the flip of the finger is quieter. It's quieter, and it's subtle. Um, <laughs> and yes, and as subtle as a New Jersey skyline. That's what, yes. I, that's what I love. And, you know, California is a state that is basically legislated around cars, around the fact that there's tons of cars on the street and that everyone drives everywhere all the time. So if you had everyone honking all the time, imagine the noise pollution. I understand the law. I would have just paid the ticket because if I wanted to honk 14 times, I would already know that I'm, like, going to get my money's worth. Um, <laughs> so, you know, I, I 
I kind of understand where she's coming from, but the state of California has a point here, too. I don't know. I'm sure I've honked 14 times. She, she was honking in support, though. The middle finger wouldn't have worked. It would have expressed the yeah. wrong right. viewpoint. What did, yeah. you, what did you honk 14 times at? Like, uh, if I'm going over, um, like, if it's 4th of July or whatever in my town, and I'm uh-huh. going over and there's people, like, waving flags, I'm like, honk, 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 Okay, well, that's 4th of July, and you get away with it because there's so much noise from the fires already. <laughs> well, now it's not content neutral anymore. Uh-huh. You've come up with a rule that's no longer constitutional. <laughs> You're allowing people to honk only to express certain ideas. Mm. Not certain ideas, but in certain mm. contexts where there's already no so no one would care. Hmm. There's so much noise, no one would care. As a resident of Brooklyn, surrounded by New York and New Jersey, I am surrounded by people who would revolt if their right to beep was taken away. So I cannot even imagine a world where people are silenced. They used to have signs up that said no honking in the area around the Lincoln Tunnel. It was a Giuliani-era thing. where Ah. They decided they wouldn't let you block the box anymore and you weren't allowed to honk for reasons other than, like, someone was about to hit your car. And, you know, I live in Manhattan. I would like less less street noise as well, but they don't seem to do that anymore. California's going that direction. California <laughs> is following a page from Giuliani. Very interesting. Uh, thank you all very much. Okay, so uh, GOP Congressman Jim Jordan, now in legal hot water with the Manhattan District Attorney, Alvin Bragg, will explain. Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg is suing Congressman Jim Jordan, the Republican chairman of the House Judiciary Committee. Bragg accuses Jordan of trying to interfere in the criminal case against former President Trump through what he calls, quote, a transparent campaign to intimidate and attack. We'll have much more of this developing story in a few minutes at the top of the hour. So coming up, some of our best reporters are here to share the scoops that they've been working on including new details on Dominion's lawsuit against Fox and why so many of us are driving trucks instead of electric vehicles nowadays. All of that and more will be right back. Welcome back to CNN Tonight. This hour, we're talking with some of our favorite reporters about their scoops on the stories they're covering this week. Tonight, we've got Elena Train, Rahel Solomon, Sarah Fisher, and Eva McCann. Ladies, thank you so much for being here. Really looking forward to talking to all of you. So let's start here. The Manhattan District Attorney, who indicted former President Trump, now suing GOP Congressman Jim Jordan. The legal tension between the DA and the House Judiciary Committee chair started shortly after Donald Trump announced that he expected to be arrested. Jordan wants documents and insight into the hush money investigation, and last week issued a subpoena for the former senior prosecutor, Mark Pomerantz. But the district attorney is blasting the effort as harassment and retaliation for prosecuting Donald Trump. And after Jim Jordan announced this week that his Judiciary Committee planned to hold a hearing on crime in Manhattan, Well, the New York mayor, Eric Adams, fired back. Those same people that are talking about uh, the crime in New York per capita, they are going up. They're increasing. And so uh, why are they here? They should be holding a hearing in their municipalities to deal with the issues there. This is put put on place by uh, Donald Trump campaign committee. You know, listen, this is not about public safety. Okay, Elena, let's start with you, because I know that you have been working on this story. This is unprecedented, basically, for a DA to be suing a a sitting congressman for this. I mean, it's really amazing what we're seeing happen. It is. It's very uncommon. Um, And of course, I mean, Donald Trump is the first former president to ever be indicted. And so that's also unprecedented. And so we're seeing measures 
between local courts and prosecutors and Congress play out on a field that we've never really seen before. And this is a huge escalation in this back and forth. I mean, for weeks now, we've seen the tensions between Jim Jordan and the Judiciary Committee and their Republicans and the Manhattan District Attorney's Office reach a fever pitch. Um, and this lawsuit is finally Alvin Bragg hitting backs. For a while, he's just been letting some of these requests come at him. He's been in, engaging with them, but saying that he does not want to sit down. He, they, I mean, they asked for his testimony weeks ago, uh, even before Donald Trump was indicted. Um, and so this is now finally Alvin Bragg is issuing you know, a lawsuit of his own and starting to go after Republicans. And he's really saying that this is an intimidation effort. And one of the key things in this lawsuit is that he doesn't think that this committee has any legislative purpose to be going after the Manhattan District Attorney's Office, that it's all political and that they're just trying to get involved because Donald Trump was indicted. And he he cited a lot of Kevin McCarthy, even the Speaker of the House, cited his response to the indictment. He cited Jim Jordan tweeting that the indictment was outrageous, even before a lot of these people, these people were weighing in before they saw the charges against the former president. And so it, it's going to be fascinating to watch this in the coming weeks. And I do think Monday is when we'll really see it all come to a head in New York, where the Judiciary Committee is holding this field hearing just blocks from where Donald Trump was arraigned in court last week. And so um, I think this is going to be a very big topic for the weeks to come. Do you also have some reporting that in, Donald Trump is in the background pulling some of these strings or at least back channeling with some of these people? We do. Um, there's been a lot of communication between Donald Trump, his top advisors. I mean, people in his inner circle, people that he speaks with every single day and Congress and mainly these committees, and not just some of the chairmen, but also members on these committees. I know that Elise Stefanik calls Donald Trump all the time, and she said, and she told us uh, that she called Trump after the committee issued this letter to Alvin Bragg and walked him through why they were doing this and what the process would look like. Um, and that, to me, just shows, I mean, the power that Donald Trump still has over the Republican Party in Congress. He's no longer president. He's not in the White House. And yet they're all trying to play defense for him on Capitol Hill. And so um, the one thing I do want to point out, Joe, about these back channels is that Joe Takapina, Donald Trump's lawyer, one of his lawyers, um, weeks before, even a month or so before the indictment was starting to you know, play out and they knew that they were going to be issuing it. Joe Takapina issued a letter to Jim Jordan and said, we want you to investigate Alvin Bragg. We think that you need to investigate Alvin Bragg. And I think that just shows the extent of some of these communications and the extent of really how involved Donald Trump and his team still are in a lot of what Congress is doing and investigating. And basically you're saying it was premeditated. I mean, before it was even underway, they knew they were going to do that. Right. Um, so, Eva, I know that you've spent so much time on the campaign trail and you have been talking to voters. And so does this come up? Is this why they voted Republicans in? So, Allison, I am just I'm curious to see the strength of this political argument that Republicans are making here. Uh, no doubt there are some voters that elevated Republicans to the House majority for this very reason. Right. To be the former president's chief defender to raise hell uh, in this regard, uh, but not before long. You know, Republicans also made an economic argument for re-election and uh, to be as an argument for why they re should recapture the House. And not before long, I do wonder if some of their voters are going to say, hey, what are they really doing for me? We sent them to Washington, and is my life getting any better as a result of all of these foot soldiers for Trump? 
So I would imagine that it is going to continue to play well with some in the base of the party. But I think it's also important to to keep top of mind that Americans, of course, have other concerns besides the legal drama that is going to continue to play out for the months to come. So, Rahel, obviously prosecutors are no strangers to being attacked, though this seems to be in a different league, um, the level that Alvin Bragg is experiencing and the people around him. And so your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I would argue everything about this case is historic. Everything about this case is unprecedented and unusual. And essentially what you have here, right, is the district attorney suing a sitting congressperson, as you pointed out, just something we really don't often see. I think it is not without risk, though, right? I mean, Alvin Bragg and certainly his lawyers would argue they're doing this to uh, maintain the integrity of the case. The other side of this, however, is that inserting yourself in this way uh, runs the risk of further inflaming political tensions, if that is even even possible for a story like this, for a case like this. So uh, certainly not without its risk of its own. One thing I'm curious about, Elena, Mm -hmm. maybe your reporting has an answer to this, is that Jim Jordan, clearly Alvin Bragg thinks that he did this because he's trying to intimidate the AG. But Jim Jordan has to have a follow-up plan, right? Mm -hmm. Like there's got to be a way where he can pivot and say, no, 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 I'm doing this for legislative reasons. There isn't, this isn't an intimidation campaign. Does he plan to do that at all? Well, it's funny. He actually went on Fox News Tonight, after he received this lawsuit and they stated, what's the legislative purpose of this back and forth? And he said, we are going to have legislation coming out real quickly, was what Jordan Jordan said. Uh, And he said that it would be for current presidents, former presidents, if they are facing issues like this, that they can move that case to federal court and not have it be in a local court. And that's one of the key things that Republicans and Jim Jordan are arguing against Alvin Bragg is that you're a state and local prosecutor. Uh, This is a federal case and this shouldn't be your territory. This should be a federal prosecution that we're seeing. And so that's one of the things that the committee is going to be proposing you know, as early as this week, definitely, I think by the time that they get back into session next week. That's the other thing. I mean, this lawsuit came. Congress is out. They're out this week. Uh, we haven't, we didn't see them last week either when all of the Trump indictment stuff was playing out. I mean, I think a lot of Republicans were relieved by that, that they weren't facing questions from me and other reporters on this. Um, but I do think it's going to be right back into the center of everything once they're back in town. Do we know what happens next with the lawsuit? What, what, what happens when you sue a sitting congressman? I don't know. And I think that's what they're figuring out. I spoke with someone uh, on Jim Jordan's team today after this lawsuit, and they were saying, we're not sure how we're going to respond yet. We did see him issue a statement on Twitter just attacking Alvin Bragg, and then he went on Fox saying he's trying to obstruct our investigation. But actually meaningful response, as in, will you try to get this thrown out? How will you respond to this? I think they're scrambling. And I do think that um, their House counsel is trying to figure out, okay, what can we do with this? How long can we let this lay dormant? Can we continue to keep going after Alvin Bragg, or does this change things? Those are all questions that I think we're going to be waiting to hear the answers on. Um, Sarah, Alvin Bragg, as we know, didn't have to indict Donald Trump. He could also have waited um, because there are other investigations going on. And there was all sorts of, as you know, a kind of favorite political parlor game about whether or not he should be first. I wonder if he regret now that this now that he's so much in the hot seat I wonder if he thinks this was the right move or if somebody if he wishes somebody else were taking all of this incoming. 
It's a good question, but if he's a true professional, he's not thinking that way. He's thinking about upholding the law, and that's it. And I think that's why you saw him sue Representative Jim Jordan, because he's thinking about procedure. He's not thinking about risk for himself personally. And by the way, these people receive a lot of risk. He's received death threats. I mean, this is a pretty serious position to put himself in, but he knows that. And by the way, this is not the only you know big case that someone like him has had to face. He's had to deal with a lot of huge things. Nothing as big as indicting a former president, of course. But that's why he signed up for the job. That's why he took it. So I'm not surprised that he did it. I doubt he regrets it. I will say, though, that a lot of Democrats and Republicans are arguing that they think that this case in New York is the weakest one against Donald yes. Trump out of the big cases that he's facing. I mean, he has a DOJ investigation. The special counsel is investigating him. Uh, there's the one in Georgia, another one in New York. And they're worried that maybe starting with this one is going to set the wrong tone for a lot of the other investigations. I know this is something that Donald Trump and his team thinks that they can do. They can attack for future investigations based on this one um, because it is really unclear. It's not something you can explain very easily to a lot of people. Um, and there's the argument that people think it's weak. And so it's, it'll be interesting to see if, if that's something that will affect the Georgia case, the DOJ's case, and, and so forth. But one thing this case has, good optics. It's Donald Trump marching in, in New York City, in his stomping grounds. Mm-hmm. You don't get that in mm-hmm. some of the other places that you mentioned. Thank you all very much for sharing all of that information. All right, so next, the Fox defamation trial is heating up. The judge reveals that at a hearing, he's been getting death threats also. And there's also some monkey business over Rupert Murdoch's official role at the company. So Sarah's been working this story. She'll tell us what her sources are saying about all of this next. Dominion's defamation trial against Fox kicks off this week with jury selection beginning Thursday. Today, the judge in the case issued rulings on nearly two dozen pretrial motions. Here are a few of the interesting ones. Judge Eric Davis ruling Dominion Voting Systems cannot bring up the January 6th insurrection at trial. The company can tell the jury about the existence, but not the content, of threats to their employees. It can also bring up Fox's financial information, including salaries of top hosts and executives. As for Fox, the judge ruling that the company cannot bring up broadcasts where its reporters accurately fact-checked Donald Trump's election lies. It also cannot use internal Dominion emails where its staffers said that Dominion's products suck and were riddled with bugs. Sarah Fisher has been reporting on all of this. Pretty fascinating, Sarah. Why can't they bring up January 6th? Because what the judge is trying to do is limit this trial. He's only slated five weeks for it to occur to litigate the exact matter at hand, which is did Fox knowingly spread false information pertaining to Dominion voting systems and their role in the 2020 election? And did they do it with actual malice, meaning did they do that intentionally? By saying that they can't bring up January 6th, He's essentially arguing that bringing it up wouldn't help you prove your case, and so it wouldn't be a good use of our time here. I've been in a bunch of these court cases, by the way. Sometimes they say they're five weeks. They last two months. They could go on longer. So he's trying to basically keep it very narrow and very focused. The big takeaway for me and what the judge laid out here is that Fox cannot use anything that its host said on its air to push back on defamation claims as part of the case. And that matters because I don't know how Fox has been preparing for this lawsuit for the past few months, but I presume that's been a huge part of their preparation to push back. Part of their defense 
Now the judge is saying you can't go with that. That is fascinating because there, some of their real reporters did try to push back and got in trouble yeah. for well, it. And, and my understanding is that what the judge is essentially saying is, hey, you can't use proof that maybe on other times of the day, right? Let's say at 8 p.m., uh, you perhaps defamed Dominion, but at 2 p.m. the day before, you know, a reporter pushed back. You can't use that as evidence to absolve uh, from this potential defamation. It would be sort of like, Allison, if I found out, uh, not that you would ever do this, mm-hmm. but if I found uh-huh. out that you were, you know, telling a lie maliciously about me and I went and confronted you about it, you said, oh, well, yeah, sure, I told Elena that, but to Sarah, I actually said that you were great. The judge is saying, uh-uh, that doesn't work. You still told a lie. And so uh, I thought that was really interesting I for sure. I think so, too. I think that's interesting. Also, I think it's interesting that they're going to allow the salaries of top hosts mm-hmm. and executives to be told. I mean, as you were saying, but why? Yeah. How, is, how is that relevant? How is this germane to the case at all? I mean, it's everyone is obviously curious about this and fascinated by this. Because Dominion is trying to prove, as I said before, actual malice, that Fox aired these baseless claims in order to improve its business outcomes. Mm. And part of making that case is showing that the people who were making those claims have a serious financial stake in the success of the company. If these people are making you know, tens of millions of dollars a year because their shows are rated very highly, they have a financial stake and pushing forth these baseless election claims because it will boost ratings. And by the way, we know that that's how their thinking was because in previous depositions, text messages, email exchanges between employees, hosts, and producers show that this is how they were thinking. In particular, you had people like Tucker Carlson saying, get real reporters that are trying to push back on these claims off of the air. It's bad get for our ratings. Get them fired. Mm-hmm. Yes. So it's going to be very interesting to see what information comes out. Another thing I'm watching whether or not Rupert Murdoch takes the stand and his son Lachlan Murdoch takes the stand. We saw from uh, depositions that they did in a closed-door testimony, it was explosive. Rupert Murdoch essentially Mm -hmm. conceded that some of his hosts endorsed, that was the word that he used, some of these baseless claims. Now, if he were to be brought in front of a jury, and he doesn't, of course, he can't perjure himself, he's under oath, what else is he going to say that could potentially be explosive? Remember, he's not just some executive. He is the chairman. He is the head of all of the things that we're talking about here. He's intimately involved. His testimony will matter. Sarah, what can you tell about how clued in people are about the Murdoch family? So even on CNN International, I mean, we've covered the story quite a bit. And I'm always really fascinated to know, I mean, is it the intrigue of the Murdoch family for just those of us in the media? Or do you think that that expands beyond just New York, D.C., et cetera, et cetera? Everyone loves the show Succession, which, you know, is it the Murdochs? Is it the Redstones? But when I look at ratings for Succession, and it's a great show and it's a successful show, it's not like The Bachelorette. You know, it's not like This Is Us. It's not like, you know, Game of Thrones. It's very popular and people understand it, but it's not something that I think is ubiquitous around all of America. I don't think every single person in America is paying as much attention to this, but they should be because the outcome of this trial has implications for every American. It will determine whether or not powerful people feel like they can sue media companies for defamation. If Fox loses this, people are going to think that they have the power to sue for defamation. And that scares me a little bit as a reporter, to be very honest. It also might have a fundamental difference of how Fox covers the 2024 election. Mm -hmm. If they lose, I don't think that this is going to be considered a platform for people to come out and spew any sort of election denialism or any falsehoods 
because they don't want to be hit with another $1.6 billion defamation. Mm-hmm. This so is something... This is, oh, you go ahead, Eva. Th- th- yeah, this is obviously a historic media trial, but their audience is not watching this. They're not concerned about the reputational damage, at least among the, who they are trying to attract. So what about the dollars and cents? $1.6 billion. Is that like a cup of coffee for these folks? Like how much does the money matter? It's a lot of money. The example I always give people is that when Fox Corporation, which is the parent company to Fox News, hired Tom Brady for that 10-year deal, that was $375 million. So think about what $1.6 billion could have afforded you. That is a lot of money. And I think the the biggest challenge is we don't actually know if that's what the amount they're going to pay. I mean, Dominion is going to have to prove that this made significant damage to their reputation and brand. Dominion's not that big of a company. I think their revenue is less than $100 million. So to be able to say that this cost me $1.6 billion, that might be a you know tough task. But if they are able to do it, and if this does come down to $1.6 billion, this isn't just a cup of coffee. That's a lot of money. It's three Tom Brady's. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. The thing that I wonder, too, is how much this could potentially totally change the way that Fox operates. I mean, right now, it is the number one place for Republicans to go on. And, you know, from people like Mitch McConnell, who's an establishment figure, to Jim Jordan, who likes to talk about extreme things that Republicans are doing or other Republicans who want to come on and push baseless claims. This is the kind of lawsuit that could totally alter whether they can do that. And I was talking but could with- it? I mean, I, I guess I'm just pushing back on this because they make more than that. I mean, over the course of their right. decade, they make a lot more than one point. Six billion, even though that's a huge number. So would they change entirely their business model? A few folks have pointed out that after the infamous News Corp phone hacking scandal in the UK in 2012, like not that much fundamentally changed. Mm -hmm. I think there are going to be a few procedural changes. For one, I think Fox employees are going to be very careful about what they put in writing. Now you know anything that you text or you email is going to potentially come out to bite, you know, against you in court. Two, I do think it will impact a little bit of booking, especially when it comes to election denialism specifically. That's a narrative that's not going away ahead of 2024. We were talking about Carrie Lake last night. Like, this is still part of her platform. So that particular narrative is, I don't think, going to have a home on Fox News if they lose this defamation suit. And the biggest risk to Fox is, do my viewers and do the guests I want to book go to a network where they can freely talk about those things. By the way, that's what got them in this place in the first place. They were so nervous that they were going to lose viewers to OAN and to Newsmax that they invited these baseless claims on air. Yeah, that's a great point. So the Mitch McConnells of the world, and I assume the Congressman right. Jim Jordans will still go on, but the Sidney Powells right. might not. Exactly. And I do think as well, I mean, I, I was just talking with Sarah about this earlier. I mean, the text message aspect and putting things in writing, I mean, it was remarkable to see what some of these... Tucker Carlson was one of them, Sean Hannity, writing about Trump, um, criticizing Donald Trump. And I remember I had a conversation with Steve Bannon, of all people, uh, about a month ago before he was going on the stage for CPAC. And he saw what was coming out of this case and said, we're abandoning, we're going to abandon Fox. We're going to go somewhere else. They don't want Donald Trump to be president. So we're going to find a new news network. Um, Clearly, that didn't happen. Republicans are still going on Fox News all the time. Including Donald Trump. Exactly. I was going to say, including some of Donald Trump's top allies and advisors on him, Donald Trump himself. But um, if they do have to change completely, not completely, as you were saying, but if they do have to change a lot of the ways that they operate, if they do feel like they have to kind of be a little bit more structured, not allow these baseless claims onto their air. 
I do wonder if they'll see people actually start leaving and going to places like OAN and, and Newsmax, because that's something that a lot of Republicans go to Fox for now. Thank you all very much for that conversation. We will see what happens. And if it even goes to trial next week. Um, all right. Meanwhile, will leaders in red states do anything about access to guns? Eva has reporting on the call by Tennessee's Republican governor, Bill Lee, for new gun restrictions after the mass shooting at that elementary school that killed six people, including three nine-year-olds. We'll talk about all that. Tennessee's Republican Governor Bill Lee signing an executive order today to strengthen the state's gun background checks. This follows the shooting at that Nashville elementary school. This afternoon, the governor pleaded for his state legislature to set aside politics and act. I think that we have an obligation, and I certainly do, to remind people that we should set aside politics and pride and accomplish something that the people of Tennessee want us to get accomplished. It is possible and it is important that we find a way uh, to remove individuals who are a threat to themselves or to our society, to remove them from access to weapons. Um, Eva, you've been covering this for us. No one can argue with that. I mean, that is just as common sense as it gets. Yes, remove their access to weapons. Is he proposing something, or with his executive order, something specific that should change in his state? Well, he's right now calling for a review of the background check process. So he's asking the uh, Tennessee Bureau of Investigations essentially to take inventory. Are we doing this the most effective way that we can? And then also asking law enforcement agencies to ensure that within 72 hours that they are reporting uh, to the TBI uh, people's uh, criminal history. Um, so it is something, and it, it is a dramatic change in just the span of two weeks, because initially after the tragedy, he indicated that there wasn't a a legislative solution to all of this. And now he's signing or signed today an executive order. He's also leaning on the Republican state legislature to get involved as well, to pass a a red flag law. He's not going to get support from every Republican in his state. And we have certainly seen the dominance of the Republican Party in that state in the fallout over this tragedy in the last several weeks, but he may get some. And uh, it is just really a remarkable shift. I spoke to some Democrats in the state today, and one uh, staffer told me that it is appropriate to celebrate the small victories, that some folks might be cynical about this and say, this has no impact. But when you see this type of reversal, it is clear that this sort of... uh, historic pressure, the protests that they've seen, is, does seem to be weighing on the governor. We, we were just talking about this in the past hour on CNN Tonight, that we noticed he wasn't calling it a red flag law. What he was suggesting, right. he was calling it a protective order. Is that intentional? I mean, is a red flag order too hot to touch in that, in that state, just calling it that? It is perhaps, and that is what uh, a Democratic lawmaker suggested to me. He said, well, whatever you want to call it. Uh, But I said red flag law so that people understand what I'm talking about, because that is essentially what it is, some type of intervention to get uh, people in crisis or who are dangerous, um, taking away their weapons, at least on a temporary basis. 
One of the remarkable things about what's happened with these mass shootings in Kentucky and in um, Tennessee is that both governors' families were directly impacted by this. They lost close friends in these shootings. I mean, it's really incredible, right? It and then hearing incredible. the mayor of Louisville say that he himself was a survivor of a workplace shooting. I mean, we got some new research from uh, Kaiser, a new survey uh, showing that nearly one in five adult Americans has lost a family member to gun violence, either by homicide or by suicide. And uh, not to state the obvious, guys, but there are five of us on this set, nearly one in five in the U.S. I mean, it is staggering. And so I think beyond just the devastating human toll, beyond just the devastating emotional toll, there are also really huge financial costs that come with us, right? According to the Government Accountability Office, according to the most uh, recent research we have, uh, gun violence hospital visits cost a billion dollars every year, and that is expected to be a conservative estimate. And so it is really staggering and really hard to just put your head around. Yeah. I don't want to believe that it has to affect you personally and you have to lose a dear friend in order to want to make changes at the legislative level. But whatever it takes, I mean, whatever it takes to make something like this in Tennessee and Kentucky never happen again. It, it is certainly a way to get people out of their entrenched political positions. And then there is some data to suggest that even if people are impacted, they still don't change their mind. But but I would I would imagine as we continue to say that, see this play out, you know, we, we're we're seeing certain elected leaders become more thoughtful about this. Mm -hmm. Certainly local at the local level, national. Elena, any thoughts on anybody talking about this? They're talking about it, but nothing's going to happen. I mean, in Congress, both sides recognize Democrats and Republicans as much as there's so much frustration over how can we not get anything done on this, uh, that there's going to be no legislative solution. I mean, they passed a bipartisan gun safety bill last year, and, and basically leadership, again, on both sides of the aisle are saying that that's probably as far as they'll be able to go, given the balance of power in Congress, given Republicans control the House. Democrats have a very slim majority in the Senate. I mean, no type of federal law would pass in Congress. But it's really frustrating. And you said, Eva, you think, you know, things are starting to change. I know from so many people I talk to, it's just when. I mean, how many? We have one every week. There's, I mean, it's horrific. It's awful. And you're totally right that there's a personal connection that almost everybody in this country now has. Everyone knows someone or knows someone who has been affected by at least a shooting, if not a mass shooting. And it's horrific. And I know so many people, including a lot of people in Congress, even some Republicans, frustrated by just the lack of progress and the total inability to do anything meaningful when it comes to changing laws. There's one thing. The governor, it, it appears, and I reached out to his office and have not heard back as yet, but it appears that he hasn't asked for a bill sponsor for this legislation that he's leaning on the legislature uh, to take up as yet. So let's see how serious he is in that regard, right? Is he going to whip votes for it? Is he going to lean on Republicans to actually follow this through and usher this legislation through is a whole nother question. Sarah, your thoughts on this? I feel like we're in an outrage cycle that we cannot escape. Every time we have one of these incidents, The Onion, the satirical website, posts the exact same headline, which is, you know, how outrageous this is, says the only country that this happens regularly to. And they post it every single time. And it, it is a good reflection of how a lot of Americans feel, which is every time something like this happens, we grieve, 
We complain, we mourn, we move on. And we do that because without any sort of legislative action, what else are we as Americans supposed to do? Thank you all very much for that conversation. Okay, now to something much lighter. Who rules the roads? Rahel has some new reporting on what more and more Americans are driving. And the results may surprise you. We'll be back with that. Hmm. (laughs) In times like these, what makes a car number one? Why is Ford Granada outselling all other 75 newcomers combined? Why is Ford Mustang II outselling all other small, sporty luxury cars combined? Why is Ford Pinto America's best-selling subcompact? Ford thinks it's people looking for value, looking at what a car costs and what you get for that money. Granada, Mustang II, and Pinto are success cars because they're value cars. And they're good looking. (laughs) Just kidding. Check out that 1975 Ford commercial. Back then, sedans were all the rage. Here's a more recent commercial. Introducing the return of a legend. The all-new Bronco two-door. The first-ever Bronco four-door. And the adventure-ready Bronco Sport. Yeah, that's tougher than a Ford Pinto. (laughs) Today, trucks are in the majority of vehicles in all 50 states. Rhode Island was the last state to hop on board, but it, too, has joined the truck revolution But the definition of a truck has changed. It now includes pickups, minivans, and SUVs. What happened to electric vehicles? CNN's business correspondent, Rahel Solomon, has been working her sources all day on this. Rahel, how is an SUV a truck? I put it in a different category. A a minivan is a truck? Okay, essentially what we're talking about here is that cars have just gotten a lot larger, right? We're talking about, for the sake of this conversation, trucks and utility vehicles. We're going to sort of all group them together. But if it feels like you are seeing more trucks on the road, more utility vehicles on the road, You're right. You are right. I mean, it is now the most popular vehicle in all 50 states. And when I asked some of my sources today about why this is, I mean, part of it is just preferences. Our preferences have changed. Apparently, we no longer want the the Pintos. Uh, Apparently, we want larger cars because of families and et cetera, et cetera. So part of this is preference. And part of this is that the utility vehicles, the larger trucks have gotten a lot more comfortable. They've uh, advanced certainly with technology. And so they've sort of been able to meet people where they are. Here's another thing. If it feels like you are seeing more luxury cars on the road, you are not wrong. About 20% of all new car sales are luxury cars. That is a record. And to just, I know, I was shocked. And to put this in perspective, the average car note right about now is more than $700 a month. Is that right? That is a lot of money. <laughs> and how do they define a luxury car? Just what we would all think of Mercedes and BMW, like that kind of thing? Or what's pretty, the I mean, pretty much. I mean, look, I've talked to some of the executives from the, the ultra luxury cars as well. I've interviewed some of the CEOs, and they are certainly having record years as well. So uh, the luxury cars as well, but also the super luxury cars, they are having banner years as well. But yeah, I mean, people who uh, have the means to spend want all the bells and whistles, and they're clearly shelling it out. It's amazing to me because... For so long, cars were really hard to get during the pandemic. We had a chip shortage, the supply chain issue. And so when you were talking to people about buying cars, they kept saying, 
well, I got to hold off because the new one that I want, I just can't get my hands on it. Is it that the chip issue is solved and we have the cars back on the lots and that's why we're buying new ones? Well, it's funny because I asked about that. It's easier to get a car, right? I mean, part of the reason why uh, car notes are so expensive is because interest rates have also gone up, right? So that's part of it. But it is also that demand is really strong, right? And that's part of the reason, too, that there is really strong demand, not necessarily great supply. It's certainly gotten better, but that's part of the reason why it's really expensive right now to buy a car. So is there still demand for electric vehicles? Are they still popular or are they falling off? They're definitely still popular, but there's still a very small share of the the overall auto market. I want to say five or six percent, although that is expected to grow. But you have to you have to remember, I mean, with EV, these are still very much more expensive than a traditional, you know, fuel car. And so uh, there are lots of barriers of entry. You have to think about just the cost, the price tag, but also charging stations, right? And so it's interesting because, you know, um, Brian Moody, who I just talked to a little bit earlier from Auto Trader, he said, you know, 80% of people who have electric vehicles own a home and they they charge it at home, right? And so there are obviously some, some things there that are at play, some implications there. One, you have to own your home. And two, you have to have uh, the space enough to actually have a charging station. And so for a lot of people, that may not be the case. And so EV, even if, if you do want to sort of go that route, it may not be feasible. Mm-hmm. Even that- in the nation's capital, my fiance has a hybrid, can't find any place to charge it. So it's a, it's a real problem. I actually, I thought that this would be sort of a generational shift out on the campaign trail. There are a lot of young people, Republicans as well, talking about climate change, concerned about it. So I thought that we would see an increasing number of young people who are really aware and cognizant of this um, gravitate towards Mm. these vehicles. But if the barrier to entry is so high, maybe not. I think that's a great point. The desire may be there, right? The environmental desire may be there. But if you can't afford it, I mean, you can't afford it. Yeah. And road trips. Yeah, well, road trips are nightmares. I (laughs) have... I have friends who have electric vehicles and it takes forever to go anywhere when you're going a long distance. But also I will say this is something that the Biden administration recognizes and they're pouring billions of dollars into trying to build more of these charging stations to make it more accessible for people to own electric vehicles. And they really want, I mean, President Biden himself wants Americans to go big on EVs. Um, and they're actually going to be rolling out a new policies around uh, some of the electric emissions tomorrow. The EPA will be doing this. And so I think that if it's successful, if Congress doesn't get involved and tries to roll it back, which I know Republicans are already talking about, it's not even out there yet. If that happens, I mean, if they are successful with this in the next 10 years or so, I think it will create a better environment for a lot of these electric vehicles. But I think you're totally right. Right now, it's very difficult for people to own them and it's very expensive for them to own them. And we've all talked about inflation last night. It's not a great time to be dishing out tons and tons of dollars for an electric vehicle when others are a little bit more affordable right now. Okay, perfect segue because you just gave us a tease for what's happening tomorrow. <laughs> okay. so it's a perfect segue to this, which is what are the big scoops for tomorrow? We've got tomorrow's news tonight for you next. We're back with our wonderful panel of reporters, so let's find out what stories they're keeping their eyes on for tomorrow. We call it Tomorrow's News Tonight. Okay, Eva, you're going to be looking at Senator Tim Scott tomorrow. What will the news be? Well, Senator Scott has announced or is going to announce tomorrow that he's launching an exploratory committee. He's holding two events in Iowa tomorrow, Nikki Haley on the trail in Iowa as well. 
Earlier this evening, we were talking about the former president, but this this 2024 Republican primary is already underway with uh, shadow candidates and real candidates. And I'm wondering if any of these folks are going to be able to break through. Senator Scott has really fashioned himself as a happy warrior. Can that message gain any traction? That will be really interesting. Okay, thank you for that, for alerting us to that. Okay, Elena, so tell us about what's happening with this leak of these highly classified Pentagon documents. Yeah, I mean, Congress still has no idea, and neither does the Biden administration, of where the leak came from, who was able to post these on social media, and a lot of people want answers to it. And also just on the documents, I'll I'll bring up another story that is really big right now, is that the Gang of Eight, the House and Senate leaders, as well as the chairman and the ranking members of the House and Senate Intelligence Committees are also getting uh, access to some of the classified documents at President Biden, President, former President Trump, and former Vice President Mike Pence's homes and offices. They're beginning to see these for the first time, which is a huge victory for them, uh, as well as kind of solidifies and validates their congressional oversight powers to oversee the intelligence community. And so this is going to be huge for Congress. And I think it will be a very big story, particularly when they're back next week from recess. Okay, excellent. All right, Sarah, so tell us about, we know that President Biden spoke with um, the family of the Wall Street Journal correspondent who is wrongfully detained in Russia. What can we expect? Well, they just designated that he was wrongfully detained. The State Department designated that, and that's a huge deal because essentially it moves this case into a special sort of hostage negotiation program within the State Department. So the next step is that we can start to deploy resources to try to bring Evan Gerskovich back. The most notable thing about it is that I've never seen such a rallying cry from the journalism community and beyond to bring him back. It's taken over social media, etc. The fun thing, though, that I'm looking forward to tomorrow is that YouTube just announced their Sunday ticket package deals. The prices have gone up a little bit, but it's exciting to see how all of these streaming companies are now pricing out access to the NFL, something that forever we could only get on regular TV. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Okay. Thank you very much for that. Rahel, what are you keeping an eye on? I feel like I'm always following Sarah and I always don't have as many, <laughs> fun as many fun stories right. as Sarah. Yes. Tomorrow I am working on inflation. We get a really big inflation report at 8.30 in the morning. And so just so you know, as soon as this report comes out, we get a flurry of research notes from all of the banks sort of weighing in, analyzing every part of what we learned in the report, and then also their predictions about what it will all mean in terms of the Federal Reserve. Then you work the phones, you try to get economists on the phone, you try to get uh, different uh, smart minds on the phone to try to make this make sense for uh, certainly the reporters, but also people at home, right? How does this really matter to people at home? So the expectation is that we will see inflation cool again. That said, it is still much higher than the Fed's target. So I think many people would argue they still have a lot of work to do. Mm. All right, ladies, thank you very much. Thanks for the preview of all that. Thanks for sharing all of your reporting. Great to have you here. Uh, Be sure to tune in to CNN this morning tomorrow. CNN's Josh Campbell is going to give us an inside look at how police officers train for the now all-too-common horror of active shooters. Thanks so much for watching tonight, everyone. Our coverage continues now. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. 
I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.